Hey everyone, welcome to the best of 83 weeks. That's right, the best of 83 weeks. Now, no worries at all, the show is coming out, but Eric Bischoff, as you know, is a very busy man, and Conrad and he are very dedicated to getting you out of show. But in the meantime, they wanted to give you this best of. And it is a best of all the good parts, stuff you might have missed. As you know, 83 weeks has got a ton of content, so some stuff might slip by you the first time. I'm Matt Kuhn, and I tried to put together the best, most enjoyable clips for you, like this one. From Hogwild1996, Eric waxes poetic about hitting the open road with Sting and the Steiner brothers, and also tries to explain why the Sturgis crowd is chanting USA in a Psychosis versus Ray Mysterio match. Let's talk a little bit about Bobby Heenan. It feels like a, a bit of a sore subject and one people don't really want to talk about, but a lot of people contend that Bobby Heenan was drunk during this show. You watched it recently. What'd you think? I didn't, you know what? If he was, I, I didn't detect it and I wouldn't have been surprised if he was, I mean, it, Look, that event was an amazingly difficult event for a lot of reasons, especially for guys who just weren't really inclined <laughs> to want them to be there in the first place. And some of us were. I mean, we had an amazing ride. We haven't talked about that at all. But the ride from Sturgis, you know, the camaraderie that we had developed, in, you know, again, context is king, as the shirt says. But, you know, WCW for so long had been – Number one, first and foremost, we were we were the redheaded bastard stepchild within Turner Broadcasting that nobody wanted to associate with. I mean, you'd have to be there to really appreciate what I'm saying here. But you know, to be an employee of Turner Broadcasting, excuse me, to be an employee of WCW and Turner Broadcasting, and and to go down into the you know, the atrium or to go to eat in one of the restaurants and, and people would recognize you as a WCW person. You were a second or a third or fourth class citizen. Nobody in that entire company wanted you to be there or wanted your company to even be a part of Turner Broadcasting. So there was that, you just, you just felt unwanted and out of place. And, and from a wrestling talent point of view, you know, none of us were ever together very long. Even when Nitro first started, you know, kicking off, you know, we'd all come together and, you know, you do Nitro and maybe you'd get together in a, at the bar for an hour or two after the show. And then, boom, everybody would go their separate ways and you wouldn't see each other till the following week. There was no real camaraderie or, 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 or sense of, you know, team. So the idea of going to Sturgis – a small part of it. I don't want to say a big part of it because not everybody liked to ride, you know, but sting, you know, Ray trailer, Medusa, the Steiners, myself, um, Paul Orndorff, you know, a, a, a core group of key people really, really loved to ride. And none of us really socialized ever save for a few, you know, an hour, hour and a half or whatever, after a show somewhere, so the idea of us all getting together, 
getting on. And it wasn't just us uh, who were riding motorcycles. There was a whole caravan of people that were following us along that, you know, weren't riders necessarily, but were following in their cars. And so there was a whole caravan of us out there that just took a road trip together. And the bonding that took place on that trip, going out to Sturgis, because none of us had ever been there before. That's the other thing that was really cool about it. You know, we'd all heard about it. We all heard all the crazy stories and, you know, hot naked chicks on Harleys driving through town and, you know, blowjob contests on the bus at the Buffalo Chip Campground. And, you know, you hear about all this crazy, you know, like Mardi Gras on steroids kind of stuff. And you you have this you know image of what it what it's going to be like, and then we all meet Minneapolis at the Mall of America, and and literally drive. And I think it was only like about eight hours. You know, it took us two days. We spent the night halfway there, but the camaraderie that was developed along the way was freaking amazing. You know, and this was before the internet, before you know, over the top type of networks and things like that. But we documented so much of it. We had so much fun. We really, really had a blast. And I don't have a clue where this was going or what the question was you asked to preface this long <laughs> winded diatribe of that amazing journey to Sturgis. Well, I asked if Bobby Hayden was drunk and then it. Oh, okay. 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 So Bobby wasn't on the trip. Bobby wasn't one of those guys that wanted to, you know, bond and, and have fun two or three days on the way out there. Bobby got there and he, he was looking for a four-star hotel with a really, really cool bar that served great martinis. And you ain't going to find that shit in Sturgis. Sturgis is a down and dirty you know, if you go to Sturgis, well, right now, Sturgis is just about, they're gearing up for it right now. But if you go to Sturgis two weeks after Sturgis, it's a fucking ghost town. There's nothing there. Like, it's a town of about 8,000 people, 360 days a year. For five days a year, there's about 300,000 people there, and it's crazy. But the rest of the time, there ain't shit there. I mean, you might find a nice Days Inn or a Holiday Inn Suites or something like that. But Bobby was used to, you know, the, a nice Hyatt, you know, with a great seafood bar. <laughs> and they didn't have it. So for a guy like Bobby, who was used to kind of the fighter things in life, to be stuck in Sturgis where it's hot, fucking noisy. You're here at Harley's. You know, from 5.30 in the morning till 2 in the morning, you're hearing nothing but 250,000 motherfucking Harleys making more noise than you can imagine. You can't sleep. You can't relax. You can't find a place to sit down that's quiet and clean. It's just a little gritty. And I think it got to Bobby, to be honest. Let me ask you, did you ever hear of Bobby being drunk during the show? Or did you ever have to have a talk with Bobby about his drinking during shows? Uh, maybe no, no, I didn't. I heard about it after the fact, you know, it was, it was brought to me, but it look, it was a different time. And I knew Bobby would have a cocktail or two before the show. So did Gene. Um, it never, it never got in the way of work. Um, so I, you know, it wasn't an issue for me. We, you know, it was a different time. You know, the mid nineties were different than 2018. If it was today, it would be a much different situation. But back then, if it didn't, if it didn't interfere with your work, you know, have a cocktail or two. I don't really give a shit. So let's talk about, uh, Tony Schiavone because Tony Schiavone and his attire here. 
It was fucking hideous. I mean, it was fucking hideous. I watched this. I'm going to go off on this for a second. Now, I love Tony. I haven't talked to Tony. I tried to call him the other day. He didn't call me back. He's being a little bitch or something. I don't know. But I still love him no matter what. But I looked at that. I'm looking at Dusty Rhodes in his cutoff jeans. My goodness. And... And his and he's wearing cowboy boots and cutoff jeans. Who the fuck wears cowboy boots and cutoff jeans? Dusty Rose and a leather hat. And a leather hat. And by the way, Dusty could pull it off. Tony, on the other hand, looked like he was wearing a fake mullet. Now I don't know. I can't remember. I don't. I didn't pay attention to Tony's grooming patterns at that time. But he looked like he had really, really long hair, like a mullet, and a silly hat, and silly glasses. And he's wearing a little WCW jean vest, you know, with a WCW logo on it. And he just looks silly as fuck. <laughs> a fake tattoo. And a fake tattoo. Who wears fake tattoos? Come on. So here's my question. Who dressed him here? He did. My goodness. Probably Annette. I bet you Annette. Because, he, you know, he and Annette were friends. I bet you Annette dressed him. What about uh, Mean Gene? What did you think of Mean Gene's look? He looked like a like if like if you porn was going to do a parody of a of a biker rally with a dirty old porn star, it would be Gene Okerlund in that outfit. <laughs> oh my gosh! I love you for that. <laughs> Oh, you got to go see this. If you haven't watched it in a long time, just for the outfits. And one of the things that tickled me is you guys ran a commercial for that horrible fucking jacket. Like who bought that shit? I mean, you spent more money shooting that fucking promo with Jimmy Hart than you actually sold jackets. You had to. Yeah. Mike Weber loved that, man. That was a Mike Weber initiative. He was all over that. That was his, he, yep. Mike Weber. All right. Well, let's get to the show. Uh, the dark matches that night, public enemy beat Dick Slater and Mike Enos. They're airing a lot of this on Saturday night. Cause this show is not a Sunday pay-per-view. It's a Saturday pay-per-view. Uh, Conan beat Chavo Guerrero jr. The nasty boys beat high voltage. Alex Wright pinned Bobby Eaton, Kevin Sullivan, Ming and the barbarian beat Jim powers, Mark star and Joe Gomez. I'm sure that sold a lot of pay-per-views. Uh, David Taylor, uh, beat Mr. JL. Uh, Diamond Dallas Page beat the Renegade. Arn Anderson beat Hugh Morris in 40 seconds. And then we start the actual pay-per-view. Lots of helicopter shots here, Eric. What do you think your helicopter budget was for this show? Had to be through the roof. I think it was, it was under 50 grand. It's amazing. Uh, the first match is uh, a barn. What's, what's, what's amazing about that? Well, you know, it's just... You know, what, what's changed with technology, because what you had to spend for 50 grand to get those fucking shots, you could get for $1,500 now with a fucking drone and no shit. You uh, could right? you could go to Best Buy and spend $800 and get a fucking drone that you could, you know, you could literally fly it into a fire when you were done with it. And you're right. You know, you, it was, it was amazing, but back then you had to do it with a helicopter. No, I'm not arguing that. I'm just saying it's amazing. You know, that something <laughs> we could buy fucking 40 drones for that and. It looked great, but there wasn't a thing, but what was a thing and thank you for this. I know I beat your ass up a lot here on the show, but this pay-per-view starts with Ray Mysterio jr. And as you guys like to call him ultimate dragon, uh, they go 11 minutes and 35 seconds. The fans are chanting USA, which I guess makes perfect sense here in Sturgis. 
<laughs> but they'd been drinking since eight o'clock in the morning. You got to forgive them. Three and three quarter stars. Mike Tanay was on commentary here. I really like this match, but I love these guys. And what a hot way to start the show. What'd you think when you watched it back for the first time in over 20 years? First off, um, hats off to Mike Tanay. This was when Mike Tanay was at his absolute best. Yep. Especially in a three man booth like we had. Um, Mike would pick his shots. He knew when to come in with background and history and context because we all know context is fucking king. And he would he would slide in and just fill you with the right information at the right time and slide out and let play by play cover and let co- you know color cover. It was he was absolutely he was so good. So good. That's my first impression, you know, going back and having not watched this in 20 some odd years. That was my first impression. Second impression was, you know, Ray, Ultimo Dragon, the cruiserweight division, still to this day, when I watch that match, I just I shake my head. And I know that, you know, the athleticism, you know, since that time, we've seen matches now with just amazing athleticism and the Kenny Omegas of the world and and and, and others like him. Um I know that technically, athletically, the talent has gotten so much better just across the board. But if you go back and look at this point in time and you look at that match and you see the impact that that match and matches like it had on the industry overall, I I think it speaks volumes to to their skill and ability and to what we did on Nitro to change the way the product was being presented. I don't know that the crowd was as into it, but man, what a fucking match they had. And no, and the crowd wouldn't have got into it. That's one thing, you know, and I'm, I don't mean to get ahead of you, Conrad, um, cause I know you have your, <clears throat> your questions, but that's the one thing that almost immediately impressed me when I first started watching this is, you know, what we, we talked earlier about, you know, what do you gain by going, you know, and possibly attracting, you know, Chevy and Dodge and Ford and Jack Daniels and Miller and Coors and blah, 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 Levi's, you know, all the you know companies that spend a fortune on Sturgis every year, if you're, but you're giving it up in the gate. The other thing that we gave up, much like we did when we went to Disney MGM Studios, and this was, it, it was obvious to me right away, is the crowd that was there, they were digging what they were seeing, but they didn't know who Ray was. They didn't know who the Ultimate Dragon was. They certainly didn't know any storylines. They weren't really into the issues. They were just into the action. And the the action here was great for us wrestling fans, phenomenal, you know, on a scale of 1 to 10, maybe a 9. Um, but the audience, it was just a little over their head, and you could tell by the – the lack of re- real reaction from them. Well, I mean, you guys knew what to do to get them to react. Let's get a Scott Norton ice train match going. It's true. If there's anything Conrad loves, it's a good ice train match. Now, don't forget, Eric Bischoff is Eric Bischoff. And Mr. Bischoff has given us some of the most memorable moments in the history of wrestling. Don't believe me? Take a listen back to this episode covering the Monday Nitro from July 29th, 1996. If that date doesn't mean a lot to you, just think Lawn Dart. But those of us who are watching at the time know that's not the only thing that made this particular Nitro memorable. Let's talk about the way they appeared on, on some of the other television shows, because we haven't really talked about this before, but it's one of the better things that you did in this era, in my opinion. Uh, by the way, I'm watching the show in the background right now and Jimmy Hart 
is sprinting out, trying to get the cameraman's attention. I guess we should talk about that. Jimmy trying to get the attention of the cameraman and the guys in the ring. Whose idea is that? Because that's pretty clever. Um, you know, I don't, you know, there's who knows whose idea it was. There was a bunch of people involved in creative at the time. I didn't, you know, I watched it back last night and I, I didn't like it, uh, at all. Uh, because Jimmy, you know, just the way he dresses the mouth of the South character that have been around for so long. And don't get me wrong. You know, Jimmy Hart had a lot of fans still does to this day. He's an amazing guy that's been around the business for a long time and has a, a solid fan base as a result of that. And he certainly did back then. But just looking at him, you know, it's just too fucking cartoonish for me. It's hard to take him seriously, you're saying. It is hard. It is hard. I, You know, looking back, I wish I would have. I would have. Not somebody else. I wish I would have chosen somebody, you know, that had more authority. Even if it was Doug Dillinger. Even if it was... You know, somebody that you wouldn't typically see, somebody that wasn't even known, you know, would have been better than, you know, a kind of gimmicky cartoon character that, that Jimmy Hart had at that time. So that was that was a flaw that I that I picked on. But, you know, I talked about it last night on Twitch. It was it was a flaw that I wish, you know, somebody would have had the for me. I wish I would have had the foresight to see that it could have been better. If it was somebody else. So when they go, when the cameraman does decide to go back and check on, you know, whatever Jimmy Hart saw that alarmed him, he sees Scotty Riggs and Marcus Alexander Bagwell left laying as Kevin Nash and Scott Hall stand over him with bats. And, um, then Ray Mysterio tries to come out of the truck or the trailer and attack him. And of course he tries to splash Nash and Nash just catches him, throws him on his shoulder, lawn darts him. In one of the more famous scenes, and then the guys sprint away to their limousine and they see Macho Man Randy Savage hop on the limo and go for a ride. And how fucking nuts was that? Are it, you watching that right now? Yes, it's insane. And it's been written over the years, and I think even Scott Hall has said that that wasn't the original plan, but the limo didn't take off. So Macho just sort of improvised, and now he's along for the fucking ride. Is that the way you remember it? Absolutely. I mean, that's Randy. That is classic Randy Savage. And I'm watching this last night and I'm thinking risk management and Turner Broadcasting. Now, this is before they were sticking their nose in our business too much. But I can only imagine if I would have had a Turner Broadcasting suit, if this would have been 1998, they would have soaked me in gasoline and set me on fire for, for that move. I mean, Randy could have easily gotten killed doing that, but that was Randy. He just felt it in the moment, and it was cool as shit. I mean, that, it wasn't a stunt. There was nobody dressed up like Randy. It wasn't a, you know, we didn't edit it in such a way that, you know, Randy jumped up there, and then we replaced it with a dummy that was dressed just like Randy and shot it from a distance. There was no TV gimmick going on there. That was just live, real shit, improv as it was happening, and it was awesome. I mean, I watched that last night, and I was just shaking my head, laughing at how good that was. When we come back from commercial, we see woman crying over, uh, Aaron Anderson, who has clearly been attacked. He's holding his arm. He's grimacing. He's in pain. We've got some trainers and EMTs checking on buff Bagwell's knee. And of course the bat is laying right there. Eddie Guerrero is checking on Ray Mysterio. This is a phenomenal scene and it shows, you know, just how hot this angle is going to get. And they're even saying, Hey, we need to get an ambulance. 
and a fucking fire truck pulls into the scene. It's just sheer chaos and pandemonium backstage. Is this scene a Kevin Sullivan booking decision? Because we've heard for years that Kevin Sullivan was the king of quote unquote booking heat. Does this have his fingerprints on it? No, no. This was more Craig Leathers, myself. Kevin was certainly a part of it. I don't mean to dismiss Kevin's contributions here. Um, but this, this, you know, the NWO stuff was probably more mine than anybody's, the good stuff and the bad towards the end. Um, but early on, this was my baby. This was my baby when we, the, you know, the month before or whenever it was, or the couple of weeks before when we launched it, you know, the, the, the overall idea of it, getting Hulk to turn heel was, was, you know. I'm not trying to put myself over, but just to to put it in context, because we know fucking context is king, baby. Um, This one was the one that I oversaw. Now, in terms of laying this scene out uh, and breaking it down, I would probably tip my hat more to Craig Leathers and David Crockett um, in terms of the way this thing was executed than than I would for myself or or Kevin Sullivan. I think we told him what we wanted. I, I knew what I wanted the scene to look like, but in terms of how well it was executed, that was really Craig Leathers, Neil Pruitt, David Crockett. It's quite the scene, man. And there's been lots of rumor and innuendo over the years that this caused such a panic on site that people were legitimately calling 911. Is that true? What can you tell us about uh, how people reacted to this? on site. It is true. And it was, you know, something that I didn't think about. I mean, and I'm, it's not like I was sleeping at the wheel or too busy or whatever. It's just, I, I, I never would have anticipated that you could do something on a wrestling show that was so believable that people sitting at home would call the cops in the local market. But that's exactly what happened. And now we knew, you know, we had ambulances standing by. We had certain things. David Crockett had had arranged, and and David had a great staff of other people too. It wasn't just David Crockett; it was a team effort. But they had, you know, we had ambulances standing by. We had paramedics that we wanted to use, and they were all real paramedics too, by the way. These weren't actors dressed up as paramedics and gimmick, you know, ambulances like we see so often nowadays. But um, so all that we knew was going to come in. We we played we we paid for it. <laughs> We, we signed the contracts and paid for it, but we also had cops showing up that were not part of the scheduled, you know, paramedic team. And we got word right away from Disney management, you know, police are on their way. And I'm thinking, what do you mean the police are on their way? The fuck are they on their way for? And sure enough, we had Orlando cops showing up on, on the set because people were, you know, people called 911. They thought there was a murder going on backstage because they'd never seen anything like it. It was so believable that, you know, it just didn't look like a wrestling angle. And even to sell the realism, they unmask Ray Mysterio and he covers his face with his hands, but that really gets over the seriousness of the situation and to see ambulances on TV on a wrestling show are not that common, especially in this era. The, I mean, and I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, go ahead. I was going to say, I mean, it was all, it, it was everything 
You know, you, you, you didn't see ambulances. You didn't see this type. You, nobody had ever seen this type of scene in wrestling before. It had never been done before. You may have seen something kind of in a way similar, but not executed like this and produced as well. The, the thing, though, that I thought made it, and sure, tearing off the mask, and Tony pointed it out. You know, I mean, not only did they take off Ray's mask, because in real in a real situation, if his skull was cracked, you know, they're not going to be able to treat it with a mask on. Right. And it was a little detail that made it really believable. And there was a lot of those little details that made this work. But I think the one big detail that I was, again, looking back at it, you know, Chris Benoit, Arn Anderson, I mean, Miss Elizabeth crying, you know. A uh, woman, you know, I mean, everybody broke character and they were so into the moment and they made it believable. They didn't have some 22 year old jack off writing a script saying, OK, this is what, you know, some guy that's never been laid, never been in a fight. And all of a sudden is, you know, a writer for a wrestling show, which is usually the case nowadays. You know, they knew what the scene was going to be. They knew what the message was that we wanted to try to create, but they improv it. They had the, the they relied on their talent and their instincts to make it believable, and because the scene was so believable, it allowed them to really get into the character. And I mean, they literally became actors and actresses in this scene, like legitimately good ones. And across the board, I mean, a little detail: when Sting got into the ambulance with Randy Savage, where moments before they were beating the dog shit out of each other in the ring. I think it was Randy that was in the ambulance. It might have been somebody else. But whoever Sting was working with in the ring, maybe it was Lex, whoever he was working with in the ring, he actually jumped in the ambulance to go to the hospital with him. Completely broke character, threw kayfabe out the fucking window. I mean, it was a very believable moment. And I think the performances of the talent probably as much as, you know, the rest of it all mattered – in a great deal, I think the performances of almost everybody in all of those scenes were off the charts great. Do you think that from a fear of someone clicking back and forth when there's such a, a long stretch here during the aftermath, are you worried that people might be changing the channel? No, no, because it was so believable. It was something that had never been seen before. Everybody was sucked into it. The quality of the scene was so good. The performances were so great. The story was so powerful. Uh, the, the thought of people clicking back and forth never crossed my mind. Eric had every reason to believe that. Because for those of us who were watching at the time, none of us were thinking about changing the channel. As opposed to 1999, when lots of us were changing the channel. From the 83 Weeks episode covering the Nitro from August 9th, 1999, Eric talks about Hulk Hogan uncharacteristically shooting brother on an episode of WCW Live and also talks about an injury that might have ended the career of a less manly man. Let's talk about Hulk Hogan. He makes an appearance on WCW Live and that's of course something that's happening on the website for you guys. And he's really talking about stuff that you wouldn't imagine. Uh, He makes reference to the fact that a WWE executive once made a pass on him at a road trip and he thought that um paul white was going to be the guy he was going to pass the torch to but he didn't think wait a minute a wcw executive made a pass on at hulk hogan i thought i said wwf oh well maybe you did and i miss i miss misunderstood you i was gonna say i need to know who that is 
Uh, if it's a WCW executive, I need to know who that is. He details um, smoking marijuana with Jesse Ventura, who's in office at this time. He talks about the fact that the big show, who's now with the WWF, doesn't have the work ethic for him to pass the torch to him. So it's going to be Sting or Goldberg. He says that Master P was a flop, and even his kids and their friends knew that Master P wasn't any good. Uh, he talked about the fact that WCW needs more clean finishes and no more mystery theater and that Rodman had been doing too much partying. So he didn't really have high hopes for him this time says he was okay the first time, but not the second time. I mean, it's, um, it's sort of uncharacteristic for Hulk Hogan to just speak so freely here. What'd you make of his WCW live appearance or did you even care? No, I did care. And it was out of character for Hulk. And I think, you know, this is like the, this is like early internet, you know, and this was, this was another, not to go off on a tangent, but this was another thing about 1999 that just drove me absolutely batshit. If, if you go back and look, I mean, cause I was getting, you know, I was hearing it from people that I knew that worked in WWE, um, you know, WWE, I think it was around 97, 98 in particular, they started investing millions of dollars in what has gone on to become a major part of their, their revenue stream, you know, WWE.com or WWF.com at the time and, and what it's become. And we knew, you know, the internet was new. I'm not suggesting that I had a vision and I knew that we had, you know, to invest a lot of time and money in it, but you know, it was the era of the internet you know, in the internet bubble that, that it became. So everybody, nobody knew what it was or how big it was going to get, but everybody knew they had to be in it. That's why it became a bubble. And I was no different. I knew that we had to invest in the internet. But at the time, if you were an employee of, of, of WCW, the company wouldn't even buy you a fucking computer. You had to use your own. If your company computer crashed or it just was old, you couldn't spend the money to go buy a new one. When I went to Turner Broadcasting and said, we need to have an internet initiative. We need to have our footprint. Uh, I couldn't hire outside the company. There was no, and there was nobody in WCW that had a fucking clue. They couldn't hit their ass with both hands. I was probably as knowledgeable of the internet as anybody else was. And I, and I'm, I'm, <laughs> and I wasn't. So it was, it was, it, and to not be able to hire the best and the brightest and have the the money to be able to do what I knew we needed to do meant that – the and by the way, the only people that I could hire because there was a hiring freeze was somebody that was about to be fired from another division within Turner Broadcasting. Wow. So in other words, if there was somebody over at Turner Sports that Human Resources knew was on their way out – they would because in, in Turner at that time, you know, unless you murdered somebody in the fucking elevator, you weren't getting fired if, if you were an employee. It's just the, it's, it was the culture. It was what it was. And if, if human resources knew you were on your way out and they were going through the process and there was a job opening in WCW, well, you could either you know get terminated or we can transfer you over to WCW. That was the kind of staffing opportunities that I had. So while WWF at the time was building up their internet, I got somebody else's disgruntled employee who really didn't want to come to WCW anyway. It's just that that was the only thing that was available. That That's what we had to work with. So the WCW Live initiative sucked as a result. 
We couldn't bring in anybody that understood what they're doing. We couldn't bring in anybody that had a vision. <clears throat> At best, they were copying what they thought other people were doing. And I think what Hulk did, you know, because of the way it was explained to him, is, you know, he, he was doing, as you laid it out to me, you know, more of a shoot interview yeah. as opposed to what we would do on television. Well, that would have been, would that have been Bob Ryder saying, now, now, Terry, if we can get you to shoot a little bit, it would be good for us. I don't think it would have been Bob. Um, there were there were other people involved with the initiative that were actually Turner employees at the time. I don't think it would have been Bob. Bob may have been a part of it, but I don't think it was just Bob. And I think it was Terry trying to trying his best because we were all getting the shit kicked out of us. He felt it. I felt it. All the rest of the talent felt it. We were all getting our just getting our asses kicked and it was there was desperation in the air we were trying just about anything and i think terry you know in particular you know with some of the comments that you just relate to me I, I don't remember hearing them but i as you relay them to me they they sound familiar to me you know some of those comments about clean finishes well that's where people were talking about in the internet Fuck, I've been hearing that on the in the dirt sheets i've been hearing that in the dirt sheets since 1987 when i went to work for Vern. that was nothing new it was kind of common commentary, you know, each and every week in your favorite dirt sheet. Um, you know, his comments about Rodman surprised me. Um, he was right about Paul White, <laughs> by the way. That's why I didn't mind when, you know, Paul White came to me and said WWE offered him a million dollars a year for 10 years. It was kind of like, dude, you need to take that. <laughs> you need to go now. <laughs> Let me give you a ride to the airport. Um so, I mean, that was then Paul's obviously matured. Paul was very young at the time and was going through a lot of other stuff, but, um, Paul's clearly, you know, going on to become somebody, you know, noteworthy in the industry. But at that time, man, <laughs> he just wasn't putting a lot into it. Um, so the comments were accurate, uh, but it was, it was very uncharacteristic for Hulk. No doubt about it. Let's talk about, uh, David Finley. He suffers a broken leg and severs tendons in his leg on July 25th in Jackson, Mississippi, a table slices through part of his leg to the point that the actual bone is visible. He's bleeding like crazy. He undergoes surgery and people are saying this might be it for him. What do you remember about Finley's surgery? Of course, this wound up not being the end for him, but it was a spot where everyone was talking about it. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, this, the the match, I believe it was with Brian Nobbs, um, you know, a typical hardcore match. It happened, obviously, outside of the ring, uh, and he went through the table on a sharp edge of the table, uh, tore him up, as you described. Um, I like Fit a lot, still do to this day, but I had a lot of respect for Fit. I, you know, again, Steve Regal. You know, Fit Finley, they came from an era or a wrestling culture, uh, psychology from, from a psychology perspective that I identified with. It was grounded in reality and believability. It wasn't as flashy as, as American audiences were accustomed to. But again, at that time, 98, 97, 98, 99, we were working really hard to establish as strong a presence in the UK as we possibly could because we didn't have a strong presence over there. We didn't have a strong TV. 
We didn't have strong promotional partners over there, and we were trying to improve on that. And that's why Fit Fit was a part of the roster initially. But um, I remember the incident. I remember seeing him, I believe, a week or two weeks after the incident. He came to uh, he came to a television taping. I think we were on a plane together, and we talked for you know 20 minutes or a half hour about it. And at the time, he wasn't sure he was going to be able to wrestle again. Well, lucky for wrestling fans everywhere, that was not the end of the road for Fit Finley as far as a wrestling career. And the WWE was not the end of the road for a wrestling career for a man by the name of Randy Savage. From the episode of 83 Weeks, Randy Savage's 1995, Eric addresses the relationship between Hulk Hogan and Randy Macho Man Savage and also talks about whether or not a bad buy rate was the reason he brought him in. You wrote in your book too, Randy Savage and Hulk Hogan always had a bizarre relationship. Hogan originally brought Randy to my attention and really sold him, but I noticed early on there was an undercurrent of hostility between them. They managed it, keeping it out of view and working together. But as time went on, it gradually became more intense. Randy could be intensely jealous and insecure. He was one of the most paranoid people I've ever met in my life. To this day, I haven't met anyone as intensely paranoid. And I liked Randy. We got along. I had no business problems with him either. He was very much a straight shooter. He never played games and you never had to play games with him. He knew exactly what was coming from him at all times. And I really respected that, but he was always worried about someone being out to get him. Can you give me an example of that? Someone being out to get him because we hear about the paranoia a lot. It is one of the things that people describe as one of his most prominent character traits. Can you think of a time maybe with booking or another talent that maybe he was a little paranoid that he have a situation with say a Kevin Sullivan or another talent, a Ric Flair, maybe. Here's what I, here's what I figured out about Randy early on is the worst possible way to communicate with Randy Savage is through an intermediary. Meaning if Kevin Sullivan had an idea that he wanted to do creatively. If Kevin gave that to somebody else to tell Randy, an agent, so to speak, or a producer, and that producer went to, to Randy, bad deal. Because immediately, oh, well, yeah, why didn't he come to me with that, brother? What's he, what's he hiding? That kind of thing. You know what I mean? With Randy, if you dealt with it, if you looked him in the eye, this is what I found. Early on, like the first time I met him, if you if you kept eye contact with him, the conversation went pretty well. If you allowed yourself to get distracted in the middle of a conversation by looking at your phone or looking around the room, he would he'd read that. I mean, he had an amazing ability to read people. And sometimes he overread them or misread them. And what would happen with Randy, creatively speaking, what would what would create, what was the catalyst for that, you know paranoia or get him second guessing and third guessing is when people didn't deal with him directly, myself included. Um, and I learned, you know, early on, I learned the hard way or the fast way. Um, just if I needed something from Randy or if I believed in something I wanted to do, just look him in the eye, maintain eye contact. Don't, don't blink. <laughs> just keep looking at him as you're talking, talking through it and it'll be fine. But some, some people didn't find that. 
uh, is is easily with Randy. And I think sometimes Kevin Sullivan probably had issues with him. And look, a lot of people had issues with Ric Flair. You know, Ric Flair was. We've talked about this before, and you know Rick, you know better than I do at this point. You know, Rick Rick has always loved to be loved by everybody. Rick didn't want to heat with anybody. And sometimes Rick would put himself in a position while he's avoiding heat and not wanting to be put in a bad situation with people that were his peers, which I completely understand. It's why putting a guy like Ric Flair or Kevin Nash, uh, who's you know a major talent and a booker, is such a fucking horrible idea. But you know that also creates a little distrust because sometimes you're not as honest with the you know someone like Randy as you should be about something you want him to do. And the minute he sensed even just a fragment of, oh, doubt or indecisiveness in the way you're presenting something, he would seize upon that and think you're trying to pull something over his eyes. So why I think, you know, Randy and Diamond Dallas Page, which when I first heard these guys say they wanted to work together, you know, and, and I heard, you know, them lay out what they, the, their vision for what they were going to do. I went, well, this is never going to fucking work. Randy's going to shoot Paige. He'll, he'll just put a bullet in his head before this thing ever gets to, <laughs> before it ever gets to the ring. You know, because Paige had a certain type of personality and Randy had a certain type of personality. What I underestimated and didn't realize is these two guys would just bore holes in each other, you know, staring each other down, working on this thing in a positive way. And they got they got along fantastically because he was Paige was a hundred percent transparent, and so was Randy. You know, Paige didn't know how not to be transparent. He was obnoxiously transparent. He'd tell you shit you didn't want to know, and Randy liked that. And I think that's one of the reasons they worked together together so well. I guess that's important to mention that when you bring him in, it's coming in on the heels of a Halloween Havoc that was probably a bit of a disappointment. Uh, it was Hulk Hogan and Randy Savage. And when the buy rate number comes in, it doesn't exactly meet expectations. How far in advance of the announcement that you guys had worked a deal out with Randy, which would have been early November, 94, did you actually start working on it? Because it certainly feels like a lot of the journalists at the time would think that this signing was in reaction to a poor buy rate. No, that's not true. Again, you know, second, third hand, fourth hand information or at, at best. And, and probably what those journalists were writing about is just them sitting in their basement in front of their computer, taking a wild ass guess and just making shit up. Uh, it wasn't in a react. There was never a reaction to a poor buy rate to suggest. I mean, just think just, okay. So now you're going to get me fired up. Just, all anybody has to do, you could hate my guts. If you're listening to this show and you're a big Dave Meltzer fan and you think all I do is, you know, bury Dave Meltzer, whatever. Have it. Believe whatever the fuck you want to believe. I really don't care. It's not going to change my life. But if you want to just kind of make yourself a little smart for a minute and, and sit back and go, well, wait a minute. The only reason they signed, according to, I'm assuming it was Dave Meltzer, could have been somebody else. The only reason that they signed Randy Savage was because of this piss poor buy rate at Halloween Havoc. Now, if you believe that, or if you wrote that and you believed even a portion of it when you wrote it, 
and published it, you would have to not understand or even be aware of the fact that Randy Savage came with a $750,000 fucking paycheck that he put on the table when he walked in the door. To be clear, it wasn't written that, um, I mean, he even wrote Dave, the beginnings of the negotiations with Savage preceded the Hogan flair match, but it does feel like, Hey, maybe they knew they needed another money opponent because I think one of the silly stipulations here, even at Halloween havoc was this was a retirement match and flair lost. So he's going to go away. And of course that step never stuck, especially in WCW. So of course he's coming back, but I think the thinking is Hogan maybe wanted to go back to what he knew. How much of that do you believe is true that he drew the best WrestleMania buy rate, you know, in a long time, a huge numbers at WrestleMania five, it exceeded all expectations and they never really did a singles rematch in the WWF. They did tag matches at SummerSlam and things like that. But as far as them one-on-one, it hadn't been done in a while. And the last time they did it, it was hugely successful. And Hogan is the guy who puts you on the phone with him. So some of that, of Hogan wants to go back to what he knows makes sense. Does it not? I mean, it can, if you want it to, I mean, if you want to buy into that theory and if you want to ascribe, not you, but if a reader or a listener wants to, you know, buy into the theory that the only reason that we bought, brought, you know, Randy in was the reaction, the way this was set up, you know, to a poor pay-per-view and feeling like we had to have another big money opponent for Hulk Hogan and, that was it. If you want to believe that, you can't. And you'll probably find a way to justify it by referring to, you know, Hogan going back to what he knows, because that's partially true. Sure. We, we all know that. I've talked about that before. Here's the real reason. The real reason is because we saw growth. From the time we saw, we, we signed Hulk Hogan, we were starting to see positive growth. We were shoring up our expenses. We were watching our financials. We saw indicators that led us to believe that if we kept building our roster and the initial idea when I first came in, you know, to change our brand perception from being the little tiny southern, you know, me too kind of wrestling company who couldn't even get a free drink at at a major licensing and merchandising show or couldn't get anybody at DirecTV to really pick up the phone and take our phone calls because our pay-per-view sucked so bad, or couldn't book an arena anywhere in the country because everybody knew we couldn't draw. The only way we were going to fix those things was by bringing in talent like Hulk Hogan, like Randy Savage. Hulk Hogan worked. Bringing in Hulk Hogan from a business-to-business point of view, not from a Dave Meltzer point of view, okay, not from your average wrestling fan point of view, But from a business-to-business perspective, bringing in Hulk Hogan had a significant impact on WCW's bottom line. And not only the immediate bottom line, but our ability to start talking to people from a business-to-business perspective that we weren't able to talk to. Whether it was improving our our pay-per-view positioning, whether it was improving the amount of marketing and support we would get for our pay-per-views, because now all of a sudden our pay-per-view partners believed that with these big names, we could start drawing too. So they were willing to risk more money on our product. Those are all of the reasons why when Randy became available, it all made sense for all of those reasons. And certainly having somebody like Hulk or somebody like Randy to work with on the roster with a Hulk Hogan is certainly one of them. But to, for anybody to suggest 
that it was a reaction to a poor participating pay-per-view buy rate is a reflection of their ignorance. Let's talk about, um, the way Vince McMahon finds out because he actually has him advertised for a Madison square garden show at the end of November in 94, and he's going to be a special guest referee. And of course that doesn't happen. And he announces in early November on raw that they couldn't come to terms. And most everybody listening to this has seen that clip before. And then you guys debut him on WCW Saturday night with an interview with main Gene Okerlund. And I think this was done at center stage in Atlanta. And it's done in a way where you're trying to build intrigue and interest as to what's going to happen when he finally sees Hulk Hogan. And he teases in this promo that he's going to be at Starcade and he wants to see Hulk Hogan, but he's not sure if he's going to slap him or shake his hand. And it feels like this is maybe too late in the game to put him into a match. So that's the next best thing, right? It was, you know, and I watched that interview, uh, yesterday on Patreon, did a watch along. I actually put my iPad um, on camera, so we literally, you know, with our followers over at Patreon, watched that setup uh, for WCW Saturday Night. And you know, a couple things that that I took away seeing that interview again. Um, one, first and foremost, is that Randy did a phenomenal job building anticipation. It wasn't a match, you know, it was a short window, as you pointed out. But, you know, to come into WCW Saturday night, he got a tremendous crowd reaction um, and cut what I think was probably about a three-minute promo, if not longer, that he completely improved, by the way. There was no script. That was the other great thing I loved about Randy. And Gene was spectacular as well, Gene Oakland. Um, but to go out there for three or four minutes and talk about, you know, needing Hulk Hogan and am I going to – Shake your hand, brother. I'm going to reach my hand out or I'm going to slap you in the face and spin your head off your shoulders all the way back to Venice Beach, California. It's a fucking great promo. But it did what it, what it should have done is create the question. This is one of the things to this day, if, if, if I was ever in a position again creatively, and I learned, you know, I learned so much especially during the last three or four years at WCW and, you know, year or two at TNA <coughs> about storytelling. And I learned it not, not so much in WCW and certainly I didn't learn shit in TNA other than what not to do. But, you know, since about 2003, I have been producing along with, you know, my, my former partner, Jason Hurry, we've been producing television series, creating them, not just producing. We would create the idea on paper it were reality, unscripted stuff. And we'd create the idea and we'd sell it and we'd produce it uh, for a variety of television networks, whether it's MTV, VH1, CMT, um, NBC, uh, Discovery, WGN. We've, we've probably produced, created and produced um, 20 different television series. Uh, for, for just about every network out there. And what I really learned doing that and kind of marrying it to what I learned in 30 years of, 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 of wrestling is the storytelling process. And some of it we stumbled into. You know, the NWO is a perfect example. Some of it, you know, we got lucky. Some of it we, we didn't get so lucky. But the one thing that to this day I really believe more than anything is if you can get your audience to ask themselves a question. 
So when you get done with a promo, like we saw a long-winded way, I'm going to get right, right back around to your question. But when you, when you see a promo like Randy cut with Mean Gene on his debut in WCW on WCW Saturday night, December 3rd, 1994, you can find it on YouTube. Um, you watch that and then you just ask yourself, what did he accomplish? What did, you know, it was a great promo, a lot of energy, big pop, you know, blah, 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 blah. But what did he really accomplish? What he accomplished is he created doubt. He created anticipation, which is a key element in storytelling. People want to know what's going to happen when. And that's what he did. He could have just as easily come out and said, oh, go ahead and shake your hand. We'll go from there. That would have killed him. Or he could have come out and said, oh, go ahead. I'm going to smack you right in your head. That would have killed him. But what Randy did so effectively, and it's not even a match, is make people go, holy shit, I'm going to buy this pay-per-view to see what's going to happen when they meet. Because he created doubt. And I, I, I just thought that – and again, it's not like we talked about it for 45 minutes or an hour. We didn't have a staff of 15 little 20-year-old acne-faced, snot-nosed writers trying to figure out how to cut a wrestling promo. I mean this is just Randy going, okay, what are we doing? Okay, we're not going to wrestle. Okay, I'm going to make this good. Boom. <laughs> that was that was it. And it was, I thought it was excellent. I encourage everybody to go look at it. It's, it's the way wrestling promos should be cut. Randy Savage arrived in WCW a little bit before the debut of Nitro, and Nitro eventually had to end, as all good things do. From the episode of 83 Weeks on the final Nitro, Eric gives a talent assessment and also admits to something so terrible, so awful, that Conrad can never forgive him. Let me just tell you, uh, I was not a big Palumbo guy. I don't know why. But I thought Sean O'Hare could have been one of the big stars just based on look and size. I was a huge Mike Awesome Mark in ECW, and I still feel like Lance Storm is one of those criminally underrated in-ring performers, almost like a more modern-day Bobby Eaton. Like he could just have a good match with anybody. He was always in the right place at the right time, and there's so many little things he did that made a lot of sense. What was your take on those three guys and maybe what their upside could have been? <laughs> Well, I think um, we'll start out with Sean here. I agree with you 100%. Great look, um, believable, um, a pretty good uh, worker in the ring. I just don't think he had the depth of character. And again, all of this, I mean, it's not a criticism. It's just a realization that he didn't have a lot of experience. He was pretty green. Right. I think with a couple years under his belt, he could have been one of the top guys uh, in the business had he been surrounded with a lot of really good quality people that that taught him how to work and produced him in a way that we could see and, and kind of grow with his character. Uh, Palumbo, I, I feel a little differently than you do. I think Chuck was probably closer than anybody else in the ring <laughs> in terms of being able to transition to that top guy status. He had a great personality. He was good on the mic or he had the capability of being good on the mic. If he was given reasonable material, uh, see that's if you're watching, uh, Sean there, he's just, he he's, he's doing everything too fast. 
you know, he's not quite letting anything register. And I know that's a common criticism, but for a big guy who's as powerful as he is, he's working more like a Ray Mysterio or Shane Helms or Chavo Guerrero than he is like a big, powerful guy. With Lance, I agree with you 100% on his technical ability in the ring. Just nobody was ever really able to capture the character that that combined with his physical skills and his technical skills to really make it click. He lacked emotion. Um, you didn't really get a feel for who he was. Oh my God, the size of Sean O'Hare getting on the top rope and doing a senton as if he were Jeff Hardy, man, that's something else. He was very, very athletic, very athletic. Sad story about, about Sean too. I, I don't remember how he passed, but like, too many others passed way too soon. So what we've got next, and this is a little silly, uh, is we're setting up a, a match here where somebody's getting a tattoo and it's either going to be meat or the future meat, Sean Stasiak, or it's going to be bam, bam, Bigelow. Oh my goodness gracious. How roll tied was Stacy Keebler? I am telling you to this day, one of the hottest women ever to step inside of a wrestling ring. Definitely. And not only the hottest, she's the coolest. Can you imagine David Flair? I mean, what the hell? I never, no offense, David, if you hear this, I never understood it. And look, I know I've overachieved. I really have. And by the way, so have you, (laughs) but David flair, David flair defined overachiever. (laughs) When you look up, when you Google overachiever, I guarantee the first thing that's going to come up is a picture of David flair. Well, and right beside him is Billy Kidman. Am I right? Oh my God. What? Yes. And for that yes. matter, and for that matter, Diamond Dallas Page. Like if I was going to go start a sales force with three wrestlers, let me tell you who I'm picking in order. David Flair, Billy Kidman, and DDP because those guys are the three greatest salesmen. Okay, you're number 4 in the history of wrestling. I mean, in you can just look at Exhibit A, right? I, absolutely. It's kind of like Scott Hall tweets often if you follow him on Twitter, chicks dig wrestlers. I guess so. Got you said. You know what? I, I talked her out of doing Playboy. Did you know that? I fucking Stacey hate you. I'm canceling the show. This is our last episode. <laughs> I'm done with you. I know. I'm kind of hot at myself at this point. <laughs> she came to me when I was in WWE and she asked me. She goes, I've got an opportunity to do Playboy. Do you think I should do it? I said, well, what would your mom and dad say? Oh, fuck this. No, well, because that's important. You know, it's easy to get excited about doing something like that in a moment, but then you got to go home. And she said, my, my, my dad, you know, he, he's a blue collar worker. I can't remember what she said he did, but she said he'd be, you know, he'd be devastated because all the guys at work would, would, you know, be relentless. I said, well, is, is that worth it to you? She said, no. So, okay. Let me know what you decide. <laughs> I'll be curious. So I can buy a copy if you think I'm an idiot. <laughs> Sorry, man. I, I, don't, I don't even. I'm blocking you in my phone. No. <laughs> this is, I'm kind of hot at myself, to be honest with you. 
I have it on pretty good authority that Conrad has still not forgiven Eric for that one. Moving on, from the 83 Weeks episode on Sting's 1996, who came up with the crow idea? And was Sting on board with his character change? There's lots of discussion about who deserves credit for the crow sting, but almost all signs point to Scott Hall. Was it Scott Hall who added the wrinkle of the face paint and, and patterning it after the crow, or was it his idea, this entire storyline set the record straight on that? No, the, I, I, you know, I, I remember this very vividly cause I was so my eyes opened as to what Scott Hall was capable of, you know, and I love Scott Hall too. I mean, he's one of the guys that I see on the road that I really look forward to seeing, which I never thought I would say that. But when I see Scott today, I just want to take a minute to put him over. Cause I think, you know, for a guy to overcome everything that Scott has overcome in his life, uh, particularly the addiction issues that he's had and a lot of the personal problems that have led up to the addiction issues. And when I see him out now doing autograph sessions, um, taking photographs with fans, I see a guy who's not just doing it to make a buck. And a lot of guys do. And there's nothing wrong with that. I understand that. Scott genuinely enjoys and is grateful for the opportunity to be out there signing autographs and taking pictures with fans. He probably loves the business more today in a, in a, in a, in a healthy way than he ever has. He might've been obsessed with it more before, but he, I think he enjoys it more and he, and he loves it. And I, I'm so happy to see that now in 96, I didn't feel that way about Scott Hall when, when he was, you know, when, when he was either drunk or he was pilled up or whatever he was, he was a, he was a jag off. I mean, he just was not a pleasant person to be around and working with Scott was a challenge. It was more than a challenge. It was fucking painful because you never knew what Scott you were going to get. And he was a, he was a master at stirring shit up and stirring people up and just keeping everybody around him off balance. And that's not a great scenario with any kind of performer. And, and Scott just, he'd find a way to get under people's skin and just, and he would do it to entertain himself just to laugh at them, you know, laugh at how they would react. That was Scott 80% of the time, but the 20% of the time when he was clear headed and for whatever reason, he hadn't been on a, you know, six day bender or whatever he was doing. And he was clear and he was really thinking. He was thinking – he thought of more ways to get other people over than he did ways to improve his own situation. And this was one of those moments. And I remember it was me, I think Kevin – might have been um, Kevin Sullivan. There were one or two other people in the room. We were in a dressing room. And Scott – we were all – and Sting, obviously. And we were all just sitting there talking about different ideas. And Scott just went off on this Crow character. And I mean, we went off on it in detail. 
not only, you know, the scary man and, and kind of des- describing the character and how he would show up and, you know, he'd be in the audience and he was just so devastated because of what happened, you know, what, what the NWO did to his beloved WCW and the betrayals that he'd seen taking place and just seeing WCW crumble and um, because of his history with the company. All of that was the motivation, as Scott described it, for Sting to be darker than dark. And to sit up there and, and try to, you know, um, petrify the NWO and, and, and just be that, you know, ominous presence that would show up in the middle of nowhere and do devastating shit. And, and right down to describing the character. And he referenced the Crow movie, which was popular with Brandon Lee at the time. Um, he referenced the, the Crow character in that movie as kind of the archetype for Steve and Steve had seen the movie. So he really understood it and visually and, and he understood the character because that, that crow character, the, the, the crow movie or the character in the crow movie, there was a lot of similarities. You know, we, as we like to say in the entertainment business borrowed from <laughs> a lot from that movie. Um, so much so that I'm surprised we never got sued quite frankly, but Steve saw it immediately and took to it. But that is 100% Nobody will be able to convince me that anybody had anything to do with that idea other than Scott Hall and eventually Sting because Sting had to become that character, and he he did. He really, really understood it, but Scott Hall painted that picture 100%. I'm glad you brought up the lawsuit thing because I've always wondered, how are they able to do this? And I sort of thought behind the scenes, you guys had some sort of deal. You're saying, no, that's not the case. You just rolled the fucking dice and never got in trouble. We rolled the dice and never got in trouble. Wow. <laughs> one of the few times we didn't get sued by somebody. It's amazing. You know, with Turner up your nuts about little anything that they didn't have an issue with that. Apparently whoever was in charge didn't go to the fucking movies, huh? No, but, but it, Turner was up our ass over a lot of things that had to do with WWF and, and doing anything that looked like one of their characters or saying anything bad about the WWF at that time. But I don't think anybody at uh, Turner Broadcasting really saw the connection between what Sting was doing and that movie. Let's talk about... And if, uh, and, and if they did, they didn't have a concern about it. Let's talk about the actual match. Who would have... I mean, I know you're guessing here, but if you had to guess, who would have helped put this match together? Because it is... A pretty iconic deal. You see the fake sting come out and just as Meltzer had sort of guessed, uh, you do see the real sting come out and he attacks all the bad guys and then says something like, do you believe me now? This happens after they sort of pushed him out of a pre-match interview. They being uh, Arn Anderson, Ric Flair and Lex Luger. He makes his point and leaves the cage and the NWO of course gets the win. Uh, a star in three quarters is what it got in the observer, but it really wasn't about the match. It was about the story. I loved it. Thought it told a great story. What'd you think? I thought it was great too. I thought it was one of the most dramatic, interesting, layered stories that it, at that point had really ever been told even more so than the third man. I mean, the third, the third man was dramatic. It was shocking. Nobody thought Hulk Hogan was going to turn. There was a great buildup to it. There's a lot of things that made that moment, you know, one of the most powerful moments for sure in my career and maybe in the history of WCW. 
um, and maybe in the top five or eight or however anybody wants to quantify shit in the wrestling industry, at least in the last 30 years. But I think this particular story, because of what it led to and just the way it was executed and the layers within that story, I thought was really one of the best ones we've ever done. Let's talk about, uh, the fallout. How's everybody feeling about it? You know, it's the first time that Sting's really been in this spot. Is was Sting a guy who was sort of protective of his character? Did he get it? What was his take? Oh, he got it. He loved it. He, and this is why I think to this day, you know, I mean, if we would have gone back in time and been able to interview Sting, you know, three days after the bash at the beach and Hogan's turn, he might've done an interview where if he was a hundred percent honest with himself, maybe, maybe he was more disappointed than I thought. Perhaps he, he, you know, Steve kept a lot of, Steve was also a guy that never showed a lot. He didn't show his cards. He was not an emotional guy. If he was extremely happy about something, he didn't really know it. If he was upset about something or not comfortable with something, he didn't, you couldn't really tell. He really, really kept his cards really close to the vest. He was great about that. Um, but in this case, he was ecstatic. He was so ecstatic because I, he knew he hit a home run with a character. It was a character he could really sink his teeth in. Going back to the early part of this interview where everybody wants to evolve. Everybody, whether you're an actor or or uh, a musician or whatever it is you want to do. You want to cut that next great song. You want to evolve as an artist, whatever your art may be. And I think Sting knew at this point that he hit it completely out of the park and there was going to be an amazing story to tell. But more importantly for Sting, I think just, I don't want to say selfishly, but personally, he felt really, really comfortable with that character. He loved it. Sting's first tag team partner in his wrestling career was the Ultimate Warrior. In 1998, Eric Bischoff decided, let's bring the Warrior in to WCW. After he did, how long did it take Eric to say, "Uh uh-oh? Here's a clip from the 83 Weeks episode covering Fall Brawl 1998. When do you know, oh no. (laughs) I knew when he made his debut, oh no. I, I knew we were in trouble when, when he came out and we had, you know, talked through his promo again. We weren't very scripted. And in Warrior's case, it wouldn't have mattered anyway. You couldn't have given him a script and he could have he couldn't have stuck to it. But now we're talking about his first nitro appearance. I just want to make that clear so we don't lose the audience or confuse them. That's when I knew I was in trouble. Everything that <laughs> el- everything else that happened after that was a degree of you know how bad it was going to be ultimately when he first showed up and we talked through, we walked through it, we blocked it. Everybody had a pretty good idea of what that first promo was going to be. And we knew that we had about eight to 10 minutes. Now we had flexibility because again, we worked for the network that owned us. So there was, there was a little bit of margin for error, you know, even live, but that, that first promo going back to, to his first appearance on Nitro was only scheduled to be about eight minutes and somewhere along the 20 or 22 minute mark when Hulk and I are standing there looking at each other in the ring going, what the fuck is he talking about? Where, where's this go? I mean, we were completely lost 
So was the audience. Craig Leather was screaming in my ear. Craig Leather's a director. I had an IFB in my ear at the time. We were going so far over even the the margin for error that we had built in. That first promo that, that Warrior did ended up being, I think it was beyond 20 minutes. I think we were like 22 or 28 minutes, which for a promo, I don't care who it is. That's how, that's. So, yeah, everything else that happened after that was just a certain degree of confirmation that this was going to be a bad deal. Now, let's talk about why you didn't promote it, because I think in hindsight, a lot of people sort of think that you guys had built this up and promoted it for a long time, but that's not really the case. Um, this was a surprise appearance and it was that way because according to the dirt sheets, there was a lot of wrangling behind the scenes Wade killer would write WCW did not hype his appearance ahead of time since they were fighting a legal injunction by the WWF trying to prevent warrior from appearing based on their legal battles with warrior stemming from his departure from the WWF two years ago, had the WWF not muddied the waters until late last week, WCW still may have chosen to downplay the warrior until he actually showed up. So chat me up. What do you remember about his situation that I guess really became you guys situation with the WWF? Yeah, there were, there were some challenges there. And again, WWE took advantage of the fact that we were knee deep in copyright trademark infringement litigation. And quite honestly, their lawyers, Jerry McDivitt, um, was doing a really good job of kicking WCW's ass or Turner broadcasting's ass would be more accurate. Um, so we were gun shy. And we weren't as inclined to go, you know, screw it. We'll, we're just going to do what we're going to do and see what happens, which would have been my mentality and my approach to all of this. But by that time, we were knee-deep and spending lots of money and lots of time uh, on that litigation. And as a result, I had – and we talked about this in pre- previous shows. I had Turner Legal, which didn't report to me. They reported to Turner Broadcasting. A guy by the name of, oh, I'll think of his name before the show's over. Andy, Andy, Andy. I'll think of Andy's last name in a minute. But um, they were, you know, being, as they should have been, I'm not being critical here. You know, once you get into a lawsuit where there are tens or hundreds of millions of dollars at risk, from a legal perspective, you have to be ultra, ultra conservative and careful. And as a result of that, um, there, you know, Wade Keller reported correctly and accurately that there was an issue with the warrior leading up to that particular pay-per-view. I can't help but wonder whose idea was this, you know, as a fan behind the scenes, it feels like this is Hulk Hogan using some influence to bring in an opponent who has a win over him to get the win back. And it's been, now that's the negative side, but the realistic side is Hogan had a handful of guys. He knew he could quote unquote, draw money with. So he sort of relied on what worked before, whether it was a macho man or a John Tenta or an Andre, the giant, AKA big show. He sort of went with what he was comfortable with boss man, whoever. Is that the case here? He knew that the WrestleMania six show had been something that a lot of fans still remembered fondly and they drew money with and was a big attraction. So therefore why not try it again? Or was there some man, I got to get that win back. The people want to see me get the win back brother. No, that is such a childish. I mean, it's, it's so ignorant and childish when I hear to hear the 
the thought process or the commentary where dirt sheet writers or fans, not just dirt sheet, but usually it's dirt sheet, usually it's wrestling fans influenced by dirt sheet writers that, that felt like, oh, Hogan is so manipulative that, you know, he really needed to get that win back. Do you really think Hulk Hogan gave a fuck no, I, I, about the win? He wanted it was the about money. the money. Yeah. It was always about the money. It was never about winning or losing. He, he lost to Billy fucking Kidman for crying out loud. It was not about winning or losing. It was always about the money. And whether he was right or wrong. Um, and look, I've, I've said this before. All of us, I don't care who you are, especially if you're a producer or a writer or a booker or you're Vince McMahon or you're Eric Bischoff or whoever you are, you're going to do the things that in the past have worked for you. You're going to go back. Dusty Rhodes did it. Everybody's done it. I've done it. Vince McMahon does it still. We're going to go back to the things we know that have worked for us. And you find out sometimes they still work and sometimes they don't. You know, the audience evolves, the product evolves, and sometimes you're on the money, sometimes you're not. And this was a case where, to your, to your question specifically, yes, bringing Warrior in was a decision that was that was influenced in some not small but not major part of Hulk Hogan. You know, Hulk, Hulk was excited about bringing him in. Make no mistake about it, bringing the Warrior in wasn't about giving Hogan his win back. It was about the money. Now, money was one of many issues that were at the center of the dispute between Eric Bischoff and Ric Flair. From the fascinating and sometimes uncomfortable episode of 83 Weeks, Bischoff versus Flair, special investigator Conrad Thompson tries to get to the bottom of the Flair Bischoff issue. Let's talk about the, uh, the meeting. And I know you, you sort of addressed it earlier, but I do want to give some other accounts. Rick would write in his book, um, that you said to all the boys on the April 13th nitro, look, Rick Flair's a liar and everyone gets, lets him get away with it because he's Rick Flair. Let him be Rick Flair. I'm going to sue him and his family into bankruptcy. And Rick would write a major executive of a major corporation actually said that about an employee in front of other employees. Not only is Bischoff a prick, they just don't come any dumber. Jericho, who was in attendance at that meeting says basically the tone of the meeting was that Ric Flair had fucked up bad and now he's going to get blackballed out of the company. And Eric said he was going to make sure that Rick and his family starved. So nobody's really disputing that, uh, doesn't age well. Um, I don't know what else there is to say about the meeting. Tell us, you know, where you go from here and, and how you intended to move forward. Like when you finish the meeting, what's the, what's the mood, what's the tone and tenor? How do you feel like you're moving forward? And it, you've clearly sort of put it to bed for the guys, but internally inside the office, you've got to figure out, okay, what's next? No, I didn't have to look from my point of view. It was now, it was in the hands of the lawyers. There was nothing I could do about it. That, that the bullet left the barrel. Once, once Rick decided he was going to draw his line in the sand, once the decision was made internally with Turner Legal and myself that we were going to fight the fight and we were going to take it all the way to the end, there was nothing, from, there was nothing more for me to do other than try to make chicken salad out of chicken shit from a storyline and, and try to make it work for me as best I could. 
But in my mind, you know, it was out of my hands at that point. It was just up to the lawyers. Once the lawyers get a hold of it, they discover that it is in his contract that he was supposed to, if he needed a night off, contact his agent who would then submit the request in writing with 10 days notice. And Flair says he asked for the date off months ago, but the WCW was disorganized and didn't acknowledge the notice. And you sort of challenged that and said that that couldn't have possibly been true because at that point you wouldn't have known that Reed was even qualified for the tournament. Do you remember it getting to that level of, I don't even know how to say this silliness, like the idea, the idea that we're having this sort of line drawn in the sand and, and, and everything's melting down with you know, the number one, the number one wrestling executive in the world at the time, and arguably one of the greatest performers of all time over a single date in hindsight, it's all it wasn't a single date. It was multiple days at that point. And it was the issue was the issue. The issue was, do you get to decide when and where you want to work or do you have to live up to the terms of your agreement? That was the issue. And the, the, you know, as you pointed out, there was language and I'm glad you pointed it out. Thank you very much. There was language in everybody's agreement that address what you need to do if you want time off. And you, he, he, you know, Rick could say, well, you know, WCW was disorganized. Well, that's the narrative. And it's largely true, by the way, I'm not disputing it. But even if that were the case and nobody in WCW offices could hit their hands, hit their ass with both hands, which, by the way, Janie wasn't one of those people. Janie, that would have come to Janie Engel, right? She was the number two person when it came to talent relations and anything that was critical to television, especially something uh, this high profile. Janie did not miss the boat. Janie, Janie was buttoned up. And she never got that notice. And by the way, even if you just want to assume maybe Janie had a bad day or something else happened in WCW because everybody likes to talk about how disorganized it was, even if that were true, his agent would have had a copy of that letter. By the way, I'm so glad you brought this up because I feel like this gets glossed over because this is where, as my friends say, the snot thickens. You and I have both referenced, well, he would have to request it through his agent, true or false at the time. His agent is also your agent. I didn't, who's, who was my agent? Barry Bloom. He would no, not then. Barry and I had parted company long before that. Okay. It just, uh, it feels a little like a, a shit storm that Barry finds himself in because he is the no. He didn't find himself in it. He fucking created it. And even here, in your opinion, the way he handled it, yeah. Okay, so let's talk about that. Talk to me about the Barry Bloom angle and how you think he sort of contributed to this. Well, w the way he contributed to it was, and I've, I've talked about this with you, I think, in the past. Barry Bloom and I were pretty good friends. Yeah. B Barry Bloom and I. Barry Bloom did represent me. Um. And both, and not so much in wrestling, because I negotiated my own deals. He never negotiated a deal for me inside of wrestling, but for things outside of wrestling, um, you know, he was trying to get get me some work outside of uh, wrestling. For example, he got me. I think I told you this before. He got me on E True Hollywood Story hosting the the show uh, one time over the Christmas holiday. Um, so, but Barry and I were tight, and I went to Barry 
early god i don't know when it was 94 maybe 95 because as, as things were heating up and we were talking to more and more people that wanted representation that were really unsure about contracts didn't really want to go out and hire a 300 dollars an hour attorney felt like they needed some representation i was comfortable that barry could could represent talent um within WCW or to WCW and work for the talent because he understood the agreements. He understood the nature of the agreements and it was cheaper for some talent to have an agent or a manager in Barry's case. There's a difference. Um, Barry is a manager taking 10% versus getting a, a $300 an hour attorney bill. So I encouraged talent to speak to Barry and if they had questions about their, their contracts or they felt uncomfortable about their contracts, I encouraged them to hire Barry and engage with him. But the understanding that Barry and I had, because we were friends, was don't ever play both ends against the middle. Don't let me – don't agree for me in, or, or, or enjoy the benefits of me bringing you business and asking you to help people understand their agreements and then turn around and use those opportunities and that information against me down the road with WWF. If I find you playing both ends against the middle, that will be the end of our relationship. And that happened, I think, probably in 96 or 7 is, is exactly when that happened. So by now, in 1998, do you think I had a good working relationship with Barry Bloom? No. It's just interesting no. that Barry Bloom is, is in the middle of all these conversations. I mean, he had represented... You at one time tried to with Flair Waltman, you know, who has famously just jumped ship and is now on the other show. Not really jumped ship. You fired his ass, but he showed up on the other show. And it's just interesting that his name always pops up. It does feel like he's always in the middle of it. What 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 does that suggest to you? Well, you know what it suggests. <laughs> you know, it's well, let's paint the picture. Come on, I know. Yeah, I know you don't want to make Barry mad at you, but he's a. He, he, no, I've never done he, any business with Barry. He asked for tickets to All In, and I, I gave him tickets in one of my suites to All In, and that's the extent of our business together. I don't have anything bad to say about Barry. I've never done any business with him, but I can certainly read between the lines here that, well, roll tide. So let's talk a little bit about, um, that night where you give the speech, because I do feel like this is sort of glossed over. You give the speech, you let everybody know what's going on. And because it's WCW, I feel like a lot of the guys, not even just WCW, that's not fair because it's wrestling in 1998. A lot of the guys have to be wondering, uh, ah, is Bischoff working the boys? Is this going to be an angle? Was there any sort of undercurrent with the guys that thought, Hey, this is all just a big work and they're going to have a big payoff, especially when you had sort of cut a promo on him a few days prior at thunder probably i mean nobody came up to me and asked me nobody right. accused me of it i didn't hear anybody you know talking when they didn't think i was within you know earshot um but i can imagine they probably did because it was uncharacteristic of me first of all to to do what i did and to give the speech that i gave and to talk about drawing a line in the sand and you know basically, you know, suing Ric Flair into bankruptcy, those words I did say, which were very, very uncharacteristic of me. So I would imagine, given the nature of the way we were creating television and 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 working people and, and using real life and, and, and weaving it into story, I'd be surprised if people didn't think it was a work. Well, what's what's interesting to me is 
on that very night when you're giving the speech and a lot of the guys have to think, oh, this is going to be a work. That's the night that raw finally beats nitro. That's the night that 83 weeks, the streak ends. That's week 84 raw finally wins. And it's with the Hogan, Mr. McMahon or not Hogan McMahon, but Austin McMahon storyline. So it's just interesting. A few days later, I guess we should mention, or a week later, rather, uh, JR can't help himself and actually name drops flair on the April 20th raw show. Now that's going to stir things up in a big way, which is what they're looking for here. And I'm sure there was no real concern on the WCW side, but I just have to ask when, when JR mentions flair on raw the next week, sort of hinting about the pay-per-view this weekend, which was unforgiven 1998, April 26th. And where is it? Greensboro, North Carolina, flair country, the home of Starcade. Did it even cross your mind that he may try to show up there or that Vince McMahon may put him on TV, especially given all the back and forth wrangling you guys had had a few years prior with Hall and Nash. No, there was no, look, we knew we had him under contract. We knew that the contract was locked. <clears throat> there was no, there was no, there was no room for any maneuvering on Rick's part or WWE's part, particularly in light of the fact that we were already deeply engaged in litigation. So there was no concern that he might actually show up. Um, to get under my skin a little bit, <laughs> you know, it's kind of a, an old wrestling kind of technique, you know, drop that name out there, convince people that there's a chance. And it's a, it was a kind of a shitty thing to do for JR. I'm surprised they did it because if there were people who believed that Ric Flair might show up in, in Greenville and then they knew he wasn't going to, that's a pretty, um, that's just a classless move promotionally. So that surprised me a little bit, but there was no concern that he actually would. Did you hear the proposed idea? Because allegedly Flair, while he never got a termination notice from WCW, which in theory wouldn't have allowed him to have any sort of contact or negotiations rather with the WWF, he did talk to the office and was circling the building that night in Greensboro riding shotgun with him is his son, Reed. And they had come up with this idea of they could tease that there is a great wrestling champion sitting ringside and they would come over and, you know, do a little shout out to his son, Reed, who just won the championship, which ultimately caused all of this shit with you two. And he would just be casually sitting there in the front row next to his son. Did you ever hear about that? No, <laughs> no. It's a shame. It would have been good. It would have been good. If that actually happened. What a historic moment that would have been in wrestling history. It might even be as historic as the first WCW Nitro. From the 83 Weeks episode covering the first Nitro, Eric talks about how he really feels about ECW. A couple of guys who apparently didn't think they could trust WCW were Eddie Guerrero and Dean Malenko because on August 8th, Terry Taylor takes to the, the hotline it just buries the shit out of those guys and Al Snow, who apparently had all been on his radar and someone he was trying to sign, but for whatever reason, they couldn't work a deal out. But then of course, as we know, that quickly changes and it looks like WCW is going to be bringing in Chris Benoit, Dean Malenko and Eddie Guerrero. But interestingly enough, Sabu 
And you've been on record as saying that ACW sucks and you hated ACW and everything about it. Whoa, 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 hold the phone, hold the phone. I never said it sucked. I never said it sucked. You're putting words in my mouth. You're going all Dave Meltzer on me here. I've gone on record when I've been challenged about, and when people have asked me in, in, in a non-challenging way, you know, why I tried to steal all of their talent. That's bullshit. And I'll call that out, but I never said the product sucked. Why? Wow. I've, I've definitely, you know, contextualized their value in, in terms of a television property, especially in 95, 96, and 97, when only a handful of people watched it in small markets and large in the middle of the night, you know, as an infomercial <laughs> at three o'clock in the morning. And, and when people try to compare and they put ECW in its significance of ECW in the context of the Monday Night Wars with WWF at the time and WCW, I'll call bullshit on that. But I've never said the product sucked. I think what, 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 what Paul Heyman did was amazing. The, the, the amount of passion that still exists, not only with former fans, but with some of the talent like Taz and Bully and Tommy Dreamer. There's still a camaraderie there that's, you know, that's lightning in the bottle. You can only capture that once. But on, on a scale of 1 to 10, if WCW and WWE were you know number 9 and number 10 in the Monday Night Wars during this period of time, ECW was a... a a pimple on a hamster's ass in terms of its its influence at this time well of course seeing all these guys leaving um paul Heyman can't help himself and he addresses the fans in the ecw arena on august 26th and does like a half an hour speech declaring war on wcw and getting fans to uh chant ecw and fuck you at eric bischoff no, but that's smart. Now, sure. again, Paul Heyman did the same thing that later on Vince McMahon did. They're trying to put me out of business. Bischoff is trying to steal all my talent. You know, all their, the billions of dollars of Ted Turner, blah, 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 fucking blah. None of it was true. Just like, it, I mean, t t Vince McMahon did the same thing. And it wasn't true. But it was a way for, for Paul, and I admire him for it. I'm not, I mean, I, I think it was genius of him. It was a way for Paul to rally his troops, to galvanize, you know, the locker room, to galvanize the audience, to 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 create a loyalty, which was so important, and again, genius on Paul's part. Um, that's why he did it. But it wasn't true. <laughs> Gotta keep going back to that part. It really wasn't true, but unfortunately, and you weren't at the panel I did with R.D. Reynolds. Oh, what a piece of work he was. Um, but there were some, you know, former ECW loyalists, you know, in that crowd. And they just, you know, they react so, you know, violently when you bring out facts, you know. When, when you talk about the fact that they didn't, you know, ECW was non-existent in the Monday Night Wars because they didn't get network television until 1999. The war was over by the time they got to TNN. And up until that point, nobody really watched him, relatively speaking, contextually. <laughs> but, man, he did a great job doing that. Hats off to him. But it has nothing to do with the facts or the truth. Talk to me about Vader, because this is around the same time, and I'm sure we'll talk about it in long form, that Vader had his incident with Paul Orndorff. But 
it was reported that he was supposed to be a big part of these first nitros and maybe have some sort of involvement at the end of this Hogan match. And that would set up a match for the following week. But after the whole situation in the locker room, there's some disciplinary action and that's probably the end of Vader. Chat me up. What were the plans before that happened? Uh, the, he was, he was going to be, uh, heavily involved. He, 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 in fact, he might have been originally planned to be in this match. Um, and I'm going to be careful here because I have a rule about people that aren't around to defend themselves. I don't speak ill of, of those people in the business who have passed away, whether under any circumstances, I don't do it. All I'll say is uh, Vader was here. He was in Minneapolis. I saw him at the hotel. I talked to him briefly, but I had already made up my mind um, that uh, he was going to be a part of the roster for, for much longer. Well, what we do know is that uh, Hogan is going to be a part for a long, long time as he's dropping the big boot here. And you know what that means? Boom! Jimmy Hart's a happy man. He's going to possibility, baby. I can't even make my high, my voice go as high as his. I, I don't understand how a seventy-three-year-old man can still squeak like that. Literally. You heard him lately? Oh yeah, he was down here in Huntsville, Alabama, telling fans a few weeks ago all about Jimmy Hart's famous bar and tiki deck right there on the beach at the Mayan Inn. They've got the NFL Sunday ticket. Uh, but you can't have glass on the beach. They got cans, but you can come on down and enjoy some of their specials. And as always, they got beans and taters. Before we wrap up this very special best of 83 weeks, I'd like to thank you all for joining us. Conrad and Eric will be here soon with a brand new episode. Meanwhile, go ahead. If you get a chance and check out my show, total engagement with Matt Coon. It's a daily podcast with short episodes giving you a daily dose of wrestling every single day. It's available on all your podcast platforms, or you can go to totalengage.net. Total engagement with me, Matt Kuhn. But before we're done today, we have one more clip. And this clip is from an 83 Weeks episode covering the Nitro, September 25th, 2000. Eric wasn't there, but he has some thoughts. Many thoughts about my old podcast partner, Vince Russo, winning the WCW title. Thanks again for joining us. And ladies and gentlemen, if you're not watching at home, or if you're not watching along over at home or anywhere else, again, be glad because now we've got Vince Russo with shoulder pads, whatever that gimmick crap is that football players put under their eyes. He's all padded up and he's, he's talking like he's a real wrestler. I mean, he's talking himself up. He's living his wet dream. Yeah. Poor, poor Gene Oakland. It's just, he's, I wish I knew what Gene was thinking at the end of that promo. We've got to get a hold of me and Gene just to talk about this show because there's so much fuckery on this one. By the way, that promo uh, that Russo just did, he's got a, a full Giants football uniform on, shoulder pads, the helmet, the whole deal. And behind him, what they're doing, the promo backdrop with is not the nitro logo or set like you're used to no no it's the islanders logo because he wants everybody at home to know that he's the hometown boy he's here in long island it's just horrible it's just horrible i mean it's just uh okay 
like I said, I'm I'm looking at this and I'm thinking back. Okay, you know, you bring up sold out, and you know, I'm gonna, that's something I'm gonna have to live with for the rest of my life, unfortunately. Especially if I keep doing this kind of shit, no one is ever gonna let me forget it. But I've done a lot of other really stupid stuff, you know that that I look back on, and you know, I, I realize now, you know, what I didn't realize then. But I look at this, and it's just so obvious that it's not only a bad idea; it's a bad idea for a horrible reason. You know, sometimes bad ideas just happen because you think they're good ideas and everybody gets in a room and they convince themselves it is. This is a bad idea because, again, this is, you know, Vince Russo living out a fantasy or, as I've said earlier, a wet dream. And that's what this is all about. This is not about logic. It's not about heat. It's not about story. He doesn't have any heat. He's not Vince McMahon. He wasn't Eric Bischoff during the NWO. He doesn't have any heat. Nobody gives a flying fuck about Vince Russo other than Vince Russo. The Nitro book wrote, that's not the WCW viewer. Its audience was downscale and rural skewing. Plus the content was perceived as being lowbrow and juvenile in September, 2000, an analysis of WCW's audience composition revealed that 32% of its fan base were unemployed with 42% of its viewers working in blue collar fields. Of the entire Nitro audience, only 11% completed four years of college. Well, there you go. You get what you pay for. And, and, and you know, compare that to what I know, um, having been through it, what our demographics were back in 96, 97, even in the 98. It painted a much, much different picture. And we lost a lot of the audience that we had during that period had abandoned WCW. And I'm not going to blame it all on, on Vince here. I, I need to take some of that responsibility for things that we've discussed in the past. But by this time, as we're watching this show uh, in September of 2000, the majority of the audience that advertisers would have found attractive were long gone. And they weren't coming back, particularly when you look at things like this. This stuff was catering to the audience that they had. I mean, it, 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 there was no logic. It made no sense. Nobody was really rooting for anybody. They were just reacting to the chaos that we were seeing on screen. There was no backstory. There was no three-act structure. There was no story, no anticipation, no reality at all, no surprise. It was just chaos for the sake of chaos, or as Russo used to like to call it, crash TV, which was his excuse for not being able to come up with story, anticipation, reality, surprise, or action. To create a story, you have to understand the ingredients that go into a story. You have to understand what a three-act structure really means and what happens to, has to happen. I don't care if you're watching a television commercial, you're reading a book, you're watching a sitcom. Everything happens in a three-act structure, and there's nothing here that resembles that architecture. Nothing. This is just throw shit up against the wall and have fun with it and hope that it sticks, and that's what this is. This is horrible. When I'm looking at Booker T selling Vince Russo right now, I, I mean, I want to kick Vince Russo right in the throat. I do. So the locker room I, I, has emptied I, I, out, and everybody is pulling against Vince Russo. They're all pulling for Booker T, and... Of course, hidden away. What do you know? A baseball bat. It's the 19th time we've had some sort of stick, a pipe, a kendo. We've seen a baseball, a baseball we've bat. We've had to seen a baseball bat a half a dozen times on this show already. 
this is your main event and the guys are not wanting to let him out. They're holding the door closed. You got Chavo Guerrero there and you've got Mike awesome. And here comes a ladder of all things in a Vince Russo match. I don't mighty honest to God. This guy deserves a throat punch. He really does. This is horrible. You know, I wonder if Booker T right now is wishing he was at the nitro grill having a, a, a Booker T bone. I bet you if he was watching this right now, or he, he would have much preferred being ill from eating at the nitro grill and being in a, locked in a restroom than being in this match. This is, this is your main event. Ladies and gentlemen on nitro Vince Russo gets himself over with the hometown crowd by getting the rub from the Islanders, the giants, the jets, every piece of talent. He can convince in a locker room to put him over and your three announcers. Check this out. So he's climbing the, the ladder and he's going to try to punch through a section of the cage that looks like it's been rigged up for him so he can ease out of this thing and escape. And as he starts to make his way up there. What do you know? The guys are climbing up all over and Mike awesome is on top of the cage trying to keep him in, but we're not done. Let's do something else. Sting is going to repel down from the roof like he used to. And he's on top of the cage realizing that he's just stolen Sting's thunder. Mike awesome eases back down. Ah. <laughs> uh. This is comedy. This is pure comedy. Russo has said that he won the title because his style of writing was based on unpredictability. And he said he <laughs> felt it would draw a rating because he's not a wrestler and it'd be a train wreck. So he felt people would tune in to see it. He said, if Booker, he said, if Booker beat him, then what's there to tune in to see next week. But if he won now, they got to ask where are they going with this? What's he going to say? And he felt like him winning would give people a reason to tune in next week. <laughs> he says, the real question is how am I going to get killed, but still win the match? Cause he wasn't <laughs> going to beat Booker. So how could he win? And that's when Goldberg would come in and we're going to see that momentarily. And I guess we should mention that Russo says he met earlier in the day with Goldberg and told him he had a concussion and he had been hit in the head twice after that. And he told Bill Goldberg to take care of him and Goldberg said he would. And he put him through the middle of the cage, right between the two barricades. And of course, what happened during the match is Vincent Goldberg dropped him on the back of his head into the barricade. And Russo says that he did it on purpose because Bill always had a huge problem with him and he didn't want to lose a match. And that's what Russo wanted him to do. Uh, of course, Bill has denied ever intentionally hurting Vince Russo. He should have, should have throat punched him. In your opinion. You know, and you didn't do either. Well, you know, we'll talk about it another time, but what's worse, Russo winning the world title or David Arquette winning the world title? Russo is as horrible as the Arquette decision was. There was a reason for it. We're promoting a Warner brothers movie. Ready to rumble was coming out. It was a big budget movie marketing at time. Warner Warner brothers wanted it to happen. We wanted the movie to be successful in our misjudgment. Um, we, we misjudged just how much the audience would react to it in an adverse way, but at least there was a fucking reason for it. 
there's no reason for this. There's no logic to this. This is Vince Russo's wet dream. The beginning, the middle, and the end of that. That's as close to Vince Russo is ever going to get to a three-act structure and a storyline. The beginning, and the middle, and the end of this main event wet dream. It is. Um, it's just hard to imagine this really happened. The, the- it's not if you know him. I mean, if you've ever sat and listened to him try to explain a story or in his case, justify one, it's not hard. This guy, you know, and he, you know, he'll use terminology, which, you know, will lead some people who aren't in the business to believe he actually knows what he's talking about, but he doesn't. He really, really, ne- he never has. It's not that he doesn't now. It's that he never has. Here comes another the twist. You, the, go ahead. Another twist. The EMTs are here to check and they open the gate. And one of the EMTs is Ric Flair in disguise. So Flair is back after having had his head shaved by Vince Russo. And, uh, he's looking to extract some revenge, dressing up as an EMT and sneaking into the cage. Cause that's what happens in cage matches. So now we've got Booker and Rick helping, uh, Russo live out his fantasies. Oh, well, it's unbelievable to me that this is the way. And of course the locker room clears out. Here comes all the Russo cronies, the natural born thrillers. They're here and they're doing battle with MIA and Mike awesome and everybody. It's just chaos outside of the cage right now. Because chaos camouflages lack of story. I'm so sick of hearing myself say this, but I can't help but say it here. This, this, this episode right here is a perfect illustration of everything that Vince Russo was ever capable of. I don't care what credit he wants to take for being the brains behind the attitude era and being Vince McMahon's right-hand man and the rest of the horseshit that he's perpetrated, you know, and anybody that'll listen this show when he had complete control is a perfect example of the creative abilities or lack thereof of Vince Russo and anybody that, that believes this guy for a second was capable of a good idea just needs to watch the show. And, and by the way, before you do go find a book called writing for dummies, spend about 20 minutes with that and then watch the show. I don't even know if there is a book called writing for dummies, but there should be, somebody should send it to Vince. In your opinion, do you think that Russo, um, and by the way, as Booker T is able to just walk right out, he decides not to because he hears Goldberg's theme music and Goldberg is going to jog down the ramp in his Harley Davidson jacket. And instead of just walking out and winning the match, which he could have very easily done, he welcomes Goldberg in. And now Goldberg is here to, ex- to extract some revenge on Vince Russo. And before Booker T can leave, Scott Steiner holding the gate closed again. Yep. And there it is. 
the spear through the cage and Russo hits his head on the barricade. But technically Russo was the first man out of the cage, but I don't think Booker T has realized that they exchange high fives, but technically Vince Russo is your world champion now because he was the first person to escape, even though it was based on a Goldberg spear tune in next week. They said, yeah. You know, we started this this podcast out by me apologizing to Jamie Kellner and Brad Siegel. And the reason for that is if I would have been Jamie Kellner or anybody else in the in the AOL Time Warner food chain that would have had any influence over decision, I would have not wanted this direct on my network either. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.